Hi, and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Talaforis, and in this episode of our special series on COVID-19, we talk to Australia's Disability Rights Commissioner, Dr. Ben Gauntlet about the human rights impact of the pandemic. Check it out. Commissioner Gauntlet, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, George. It's great to have you on. I'm going to start by asking you about the vaccination rollout. We know that Australians who are uh, have a disability are behind the general population when it comes to the rates of vaccination. Why do you think that is? I think when we look at the COVID-19 vaccination rollout with the benefit of hindsight, what we realise is that for the vaccination to have proceeded at pace or as originally intended, required there to be careful consideration of the reasonable adjustments that were required or the reasonable accommodations, tailored communication, and also tailored information for people with disability. And unfortunately, what occurred, or for that to occur, we needed a lot of levels of government to interrelate seamlessly across Australia, but also we needed service providers, et cetera, to be able to assist in that setting. And what did occur is that there has been some challenges getting those different levels of government and different service areas to interrelate. Now, that's not uncommon in the disability area. We know that whenever the disability service system interrelates with the healthcare system, particularly since the National Disability Insurance Scheme has started, we've had challenges. But what what occurred in this case was that we didn't have the appropriate mechanisms in place to enable the vaccination rate to occur in a way that was intended, and that meant there's been hiccups along the journey. Can I ask, though, we know that there was a a Royal Commission hearing into this, and we heard, uh, you know, the, the the Commission say that that there was a deprioritisation of um, people with disability who were in residential care. Um, did that concern you as a, as our our human rights commissioner that we were deprioritised? The entire vaccine rollout has been of concern to me, and that doesn't mean that there hasn't been aspects of the vaccine rollout which um, have on occasion worked well, but the entire vaccine rollout is something where there can be really serious human rights issues for everyone. When you hear the Royal Commission um produce statements or release uh, um, a series of recommendations and findings like they did, it is deeply concerning. 
But within that deep concern, I think we also have to be very pragmatic and constructive and try and move forward. But in moving forward, what I think we really want to do is to also say, we do not want this to ever happen again in the way that it did. And to do that, how do we constructively build a system which prevents people with disability being put into a situation where they have very grave fears as to their health and safety. And that requires an interrelationship between state and federal government and also service providers to be improved. It requires improved communication and information, a better knowledge of reasonable adjustments and accommodation, but also the collection of data and linking of data sets to ensure that we can see in real time or in a timely manner whether people with disability are being included in policy systems. Yeah, I really um, think that, you know, we can look back at this and say mistakes were made um, and what can we learn from those mistakes? And I, I, I'm hearing you say you're, you're being you know, constructive and saying what can we do better moving forward. One thing that I um, concerns me greatly um, is that there are a lot of people with intellectual disabilities um, who have uh, substitute decision makers and often these are parents. Now, you know, in most cases, parents do the best thing for their son or daughter, um, but I've heard of instances where parents have have uh, said no to vaccination because of their their views and you know some of them are you know against vaccination. What what can we do in this situation to make sure that the basic human rights you know of receiving healthcare or health uh, healthcare is not prevented by someone's parents who might have quite strange views on on what it takes to stay healthy. I think when we look at how we protect human rights in any circumstances where there's an emergency or a near emergency of the provision of health assistance to people in, in what was a, um, a global health pandemic which was deeply challenging for each and every health system across the world. When you say, how do we protect human rights? I think you have to get your processes and procedures to be really very much bulletproof in terms of ensuring that you have things set up to ensure that people are provided with accurate information, that that accurate information is provided in a timely manner that they are able to ask questions in relation to that information, that you make sure that you don't have a situation where an egregious view held by a substitute decision maker can prevent a person accessing assistance and you can, in a sense, challenge that view. But to do so, what you need to do is to put time and resources into the issue to have very specific solutions for different individuals and to tailor the response 
for where you know the challenge will arise. So for people with an intellectual and cognitive disability who may have substitute decision makers, we need to deal initially with the vaccine hesitancy issue with good information now. The data does suggest that the level of vaccine hesitancy in Australia is actually quite low. And so what we need to do is to try and provide further information to individuals as to how to prevent vaccine hesitancy. But within that, we also need to be really cognizant of always understanding that we're looking at the, the person with disability and what is in their interests and to make that to be front and centre of any decision-making process. And the best way to do that is clear, transparent processes that are verifiable where information is given and people are given time to come to the decision which they want. And it can't be hurried. You actually have to take the time to do it right. Yeah. Yeah, but what happens when the parent says no? Um, and they do it because they think that, you know, that the, that the, the person will be harmed by the vaccine. Um, you know, I, I, I always feel like there comes a point where government needs to um, step in and, and, and uh, you know, look at what we can do to keep that person safe and do what's in their best interest. Do you think that there's a role for government to... To step in, or we do in other areas where where a person is neglected. Um, why not when it comes to vaccination? I think we want to. This is often on a continuum. This issue of vaccine hesitancy, etc. And I really think that when we look at this issue, to have to obtain, say, court orders to enable a person to obtain a certain form of medical treatment should be the last resort. What we need to do is to try and take the time to educate individuals about the issue and then hopefully deal with the issue to the extent that we need to use powers to ensure that people receive appropriate health assistance. The legal system does have the access to do that often in, in life-threatening um, circumstances where a person could seriously be harmed. But that is very much the last resort often in this instance. And I think it is very, very important that what we try and go down is the information educational route. And we look at also educating substitute decision makers such as public guardians and to give them the relevant information. And then hopefully what will occur is that the issue is not as pronounced as is perceived and those egregious situations can be dealt with on an individualised basis. Yes, you're right. So we need, we need to educate, inform, make sure that all the information is available. Then, you know, we do need to look at, at the last result options, um, you know, if, if it comes down to that, I, I think. I'm really interested to um, talk a bit about the advice that you've been providing um, to the disability and the health sector around how to protect human rights. Um, I was in a, a meeting with you where you were very, very strong and very loud about the importance of human rights in the context 
of this pandemic, and you even developed some guidelines and you published some of these last year. Can you maybe talk us through some of those key points that you want the, the health and the disability sector to, to understand? Sure. Um, I'd like to think in the meeting I was trying to be as helpful and constructive as possible, George. Uh, always, always, right. as, as, as I am as well, but it doesn't mean that we, you know, don't sometimes need to uh, uh, be a bit assertive as well. But what I um, suspect I was hoping to articulate was that particularly last year, some of the evidence that was arising from overseas countries as to the treatment of people with disability was very much um, pointing towards practices that were not consistent with human rights principles. And they in particular dealt with the provision of um, medical treatment, but in particular the provision of intensive care beds and life or death decisions relating to people with disability in overseas jurisdictions. And what was arising from those countries was a clear narrative about people with disability not being considered the equal of people who do not have a disability. And so when we chose to write the guidelines, what we did is we consulted widely with not only people with disability in their representative organisations, but also the medical professionals and health professionals and allied health professionals. And what we sought to do was to try and bring to the foreground what were some of the key concerns for people with disability, but to write the guidelines in a manner that informed um, the health professional and allied health professionals as to what they could do in the circumstances. And I guess a couple of the clear points are the need for reasonable adjustment or reasonable accommodation when assisting people with disability, the need to understand the importance of accessible communication and the need to understand the importance of supported decision-making for people with disability. And above all, what we wanted to convey that each and every person who enters into the healthcare system or is admitted to hospital with COVID-19 has an absolute right to be treated with dignity and respect and decisions made in relation to their health and welfare, including whether they be, for example, ventilated or not, are decisions where there is clear checks and balances to ensure that they are treated in a manner that's both ethical but their human rights are considered in a way that's reflective of modern conceptions of people with disability and the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. I'm really glad that you've been speaking up um, about this, because as you know, it's an area that concerns a lot of people with disabilities, especially those of us who have underlying you know, medical conditions. Um, and and that, that issue around, you know, what if I need a, a ventilator? I happen to have my own ventilator, so that was never a big concern for me. So just really humor there. Um, and I, I, uh, I'm really pleased that we didn't get to that point so much 
um, in, in this country. But I know that it, it, it has happened around the world and, um, and we need to be very, very loud and clear that, that our lives are as valuable as and important as, as everyone else's, hey? Absolutely, and what we, we want to do is we want to um, create systems and processes where the treating doctor or the hospital understands what its responsibilities are to do its job well. And sometimes we assume that a, a doctor or an allied health professional or a person working disability services is aware of all the issues and they're not going to have unconscious biases, etc. But what we actually know when we look at how unconscious bias works, both in relation to people with disability, but also in other settings, that you need to educate and have systems and processes and training to ensure that people make good decisions, even when they're under pressure, to ensure that people's human rights are respected. Yeah, absolutely. We need to educate and also, uh, you know, I, I, I wish that there were uh, a lot more initiatives to train uh, doctors and, and nurses in disability awareness. I just feel like sometimes when I go into hospital, I, I feel like I'm in an, another world, like I've been immersed into the, you know, the medical model, right? Like, you're you suddenly, uh, you know, the illness, the disease, the disability, and and you're not the person. And uh, I, I, I think that we need to do a lot more to educate um, medical professionals. Are you doing some of that work, Ben? Well, we produced the guidelines, and um, for example, We've had some really productive discussions with New South Wales Health about distributing those guidelines. And when we first produced the guidelines, they were um, sent out by a number of Commonwealth agencies to different um, health organisations and different health departments across Australia. One of the um, roles of the National Disability Strategy or the Australian Disability Strategy, which is forthcoming this year, is to look at that educative um, side of disability rights. And it's a clear, important human rights issue is that we educate people about disability and how disability um, interacts with barriers in society. And in particular, when you think 80% of disability is invisible in, in nature, we need to be very, very careful to ensure that we properly educate, not just health professionals, but teachers, um, all manner of other professionals that work um, with people with disability or may work with people with disability. And so what I'm hopeful for is that when the Australian Disability Strategy starts to be put into practice, that Commonwealth, State and Territory governments will understand the absolute importance of making sure education about people with disability is not just in tertiary teaching curriculums, but is also taught in primary schools and high schools. And is the awareness issues is a um, holistic approach to ensuring that there is an understanding of people with disability 
built into the community going forward. Absolutely. It has to start very early, like you said, um, at primary level, absolutely. Uh, I, I decided to um, wrap up by getting your um, personal perspective on, uh, on living with uh, COVID-19. You're, in, you're based in Sydney and uh, things are opening up there um, and they are here in Victoria as well. Um, how's, how's the experience been for you, Ben? Uh, look, um, thanks for asking, George. Uh, it's actually been um, a little bit unique. Uh, I'm actually from Western Australia and I moved to Sydney um, to take on the role of Disability Discrimination Commissioner. And so I, I have an apartment in the city. Uh, what I perhaps didn't envisage was having to be in extended lockdown um, and how that would interact with um, obtaining support, etc. I'm a quadriplegic from a spinal cord injury playing rugby when I was at school and I need um, a reasonable amount of assistance just to get through the day and get to work, etc. And what I have noticed, it has been a challenging time to access and acquire appropriate assistance during the lockdown. It's been challenging to ensure that people have access to appropriate PPE, um, that, that they're vaccinated, et cetera, to have an availability of workers when we have issues with um, immigration and temporary visa holders. And it does make you continuously aware of the importance of seeing the disability policy space as an integrated system. And within that integrated system, we have to be really aware of the effect that certain policies may have in time or um, even relatively immediately regarding things such as the availability of workers. So when we consider the National Disability Insurance Scheme and how it operates, it really does operate on a market model, um, a market where it is assumed that there are people who can provide service in particular locations. That's not always the case and it's one of the reasons why we have thin markets, but what COVID-19 has perhaps demonstrated is that it's very easy for there to be shocks in the market which make it difficult for people with disability to acquire the necessary services. And we need to be really mindful of that in building a sustainable disability policy system going forward. Yes, we absolutely do. And I agree with you about that the workforce um, issues and um, having, having a lot of, uh, you know, the, the international students who um, often were nursing students that were working um, in disability, not in the country, you know, it has been um, a, a, a definitely a, an area where, you know, I personally found, you know, finding staff has been so difficult. Um, and the other element, you know, is that, is that when we're opening up, um, I'm suddenly, uh, I feel like I've become a bit institutionalised um, then, like I'm so uh, not used to leaving the house, I'm a bit terrified um, to get it out into the big wide world. Yeah, I, uh, I share that um, 
uh, challenge, George. Uh, I I think I used to try and get outside for um, half an hour, three times a week during the lockdown uh, into a, a close by park where I lived and where no one would be and just to, to get out of the house. And so you, you go from um, barely getting out of the house and living a very sort of contained existence with very few people uh, coming into the house and you being um, particularly aware of the challenges of um, infection and things of that nature to trying to get out of the house and maybe recreate the interests uh, or recreate some of the networks that you previously had and it is challenging and it, it perhaps goes to show how easy it has been for COVID-19 to exacerbate disadvantage in the community and it's something where we need to be mindful of its effects not just now but I think for a, um, for a considerable time period because I, I think these weeks days and months where we've spent alone and, and um, in isolation or where people with disability have had to spend on their own can have long-term effects in terms of breaking networks of support and we need to be really conscious of building back those networks of support so people can live the best life possible. That's right. And it's, it's, a, it's a journey that we're all going to be on um, moving forward. So it's good to know that we've got other peers who are um, experiencing the same thing. And uh, and I also think that the, yeah, the one positive um, thing for the pandemic is that we've, we've learned to... Um, adapt to using technology and 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 making sure that you know some people who you know even before the pandemic weren't able to leave their house because of their disability and they are going to have a few more opportunities to to be um, included um, in in a way that's accessible uh, to them yeah I think it's um technology is um can really open up people's lives. But I think it's equally important to note that technology can be deeply exclusionary as well. So for a person with an intellectual or cognitive disability or a person who might be low vision, to have to use technology to communicate may be challenging. And I think we always have to be really mindful of the importance of universal design in relation to technology so that everyone's included, but also universal design relating to processes for, for including people in the community. When you talk about sort of being housebound, George, and the difficulties of being isolated, it does also have a... Um, maybe an illuminating effect for the population of the importance of good housing for people with disability as well. Uh, I don't think anyone has liked being um, isolated during the pandemic, but in Australia we have uh, a real problem with inaccessible housing and inaccessible house design. Um, we've only just had the National Construction Code pass amendments which have been adopted only by a, a fraction of the states to make housing accessible going forward. But accessible housing is a really important aspect to enabling a person to enter and exit that house as they 
feel willing to. And so I think one of the um, educative aspects of COVID-19 has been the importance of universal design, not only in the built environment, but also in the technology and service provision environments as well. I agree with you 100%. To this moment, I'm a huge fan of your work. Thanks for uh, joining us um, on Reasonable Necessary, and uh, uh, I, I, I hope to um, uh, have you on the show again soon. My pleasure, George. Thanks very much for having me. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for watching, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.